Sorry, I made a rookie mistake. Got the clicker. Now we're good. Good morning, Bethel. Welcome this morning. Uh, glad you can join us this morning as we gather. We begin this uh, Passion Week. We reflect on the last week of Christ's earthly ministry here on earth. And it is my prayer, uh, at least my thankful prayer, that as I think back to last year this time, we were putting together videos and online messages for you to enjoy. Uh, what a blessing it is to be back together singing and praising the Lord together. Uh, and so, as you may have expected or may have thought, uh, and as Leah mentioned in the video to the kids, we Palm Sunday is tr traditionally uh, about the triumphal entry, the, the parade, the donkey ride, and all of those expectations. And what I want to do this year, this morning, is kind of reflect on a small passage that comes at the tail end of the triumphal entry in Luke chapter 19. So if you have your Bibles, uh, I encourage you to turn there. As I set this, the scene for what the expectation was for the people. So as you can manage, and as you probably remember the story from uh, all the way back in Sunday school with the old flannel graphs and weird pictures that are always happen to be the same, same background, just different story. And so, you know, the, the entry and the, the donkey ride and the parade and people are shouting and singing and in a loud voice. And it was wonderful to hear this morning being up front to hear all the voices singing in unison. I uh, had the opportunity a couple weeks ago to be at a conference with about 3,000 or 4,000 people and singing together just the loud praise. And so I can picture that large crowd following Jesus and singing these words of praise uh, and hallelujah and yet the palm branches waving. And it's just a celebratory thing. And as Leah mentioned, they were celebrating because they thought the king was coming. They thought that Jesus was going to change everything for them and institute an earthly kingdom that was going to answer all of their problems. They thought that he was going to become their king. They even sang with a loud voice, praising God, and blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. They were probably even thinking about the account when David brings the Ark of the Covenant into Jerusalem. There was much rejoicing, much parade. Even David himself was dancing in the street because he was so overjoyed. And so these people were doing the same thing. They said, Jesus is coming. This rabbi is coming. He's going to establish a king. He's done all these wonderful, amazing works. And now he's going to establish a kingdom. And we will be able to be our own people again. We'll be able to get out from underneath the Romans, but somehow in all this celebration, they've forgotten the key promise that God made all the way back in Genesis is to send a Savior to save them from their even bigger problem, which was sin. Compared to sin, the Roman occupation was just a minor inconvenience. And so we see the expectation, the reality is, as we see in verse 41, and when Jesus, when he drew near the city, and saw the city, he wept over it. He wept over it. In the midst of all this celebration, in the midst of all this fanfare with palm branches and people cheering and calling out, he wept over it. You see, on the road down the Mount of Olives, it descends into a little hollow, and there's a ridge that kind of blocks the city. So as they came down, the parade is following. They come back up, and then they see a panoramic view of the city. And as soon as Jesus saw that, it says that he wept 
over. It, it's like, I admit, imagine it's not the same, but similar to coming down 29 from Zionsville, and you get to the creamery, countryside creamery, and you get kind of hit the ridge, and you kind of see with, through the trees uh, the, the vast valley and Allentown and all that. There's probably a very similar scene. He saw this, and he wept over it. Now, they weren't silent tears. It wasn't like he was just crying, and people were like, oh, Jesus is so happy. He's crying tears of joy. It's wonderful. No, it says he wept, and it was a loud lament. Now, as a father of four young children, I am quite accustomed to weeping. Uh, it's pretty much, a, if not a daily occurrence, every other day. Uh, whether it's scraped knees, there's tears. Whether there's, you're trying to eat the broccoli, there's tears. Uh, the other day, we were in the kitchen, and I got home from work, and the girls were running around. I think the older two were outside, and Molly was sitting on the floor doing her, doing her little baby thing, and she had a stool in front of her, and Michaela tried to walk past her, and for whatever reason, I, don't, I can't think it's malicious, but it may be, she pushed the stool, and it took her legs out, and Michaela hit the floor. And as any good father, I swooped in, I picked her up, and I was blessed, being loving as I am, with a loud cry in my ear. And it was loud, and it was many tears until she realized she was okay and got distracted by something else. But weeping is not just the tears, it's the, the crying out, the, the raw emotions. Say, toddlers and kids, they, they weep more often than adults because their emotions are so raw. They don't know how to check them. And so this is, we see Jesus' heart being poured out in this passion, this weeping over the city. And he goes on to lament. So, but imagine the contrast between the people cheering loudly, singing these songs of praise and blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord, peace on heaven and glory in the highest compared to Jesus sitting on the donkey weeping. Do you think anybody noticed? I mean, obviously somebody noticed because Luke recorded it, but how weird would that be to have a parade, right? A number parade, like the main attraction of the parade is crying and weeping. That's not the setting that you would expect someone to be weeping. So we have to ask the question, why is Jesus weeping? Why is he in this moment that would otherwise be a wonderful celebration, would he be weeping? And he says in his lament, would you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes, for the days will come upon you when the en- enemies when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you, and they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. So Jesus isn't weeping out of self-pity, right? And rightfully, he, he might as well, he very well could have been because he knew what he was facing. He knew that entering Jerusalem was going to lead to his death. Not only just death, but death that would pay for our sins, which would result in a separation from God, a full bearing of God's wrath. And I don't know about you, but I think that would make me cry if I knew that I was going to face the full wrath of God for everyone's sins. I think I would give Jesus a pass and say, yeah, go ahead and cry. But no, he wasn't crying because of his own outcome because he knew what he was doing. He was weeping for the city. He was lamenting over the day because he was moved with compassion for the people that missed the things that would make 
for peace. They were, they were crying for peace. They were looking for peace, but they were missing what was going to bring them peace. And so we think about what are these things that make for peace? What is lasting peace? See, we're very talented in our society. Uh, very, we've gotten very good at manufacturing things that are peaceful, that make peace in our lives. Right? We have vacuums that run themselves and vacuum the house. Uh, we have, I think there's even lawnmowers that do that now, too. Uh, there's cars that park themselves, cars that drive themselves. There's cars that uh, do a lot, much more than just turn on and drive. Uh, there's smartphones, smart TVs, smart thermostats, smart cars, smart ovens, smart microwaves. Essentially, if you can put a computer chip in something, you can make it smart. And then it just does it for you. You don't have to worry about it. And so all these things are smart, and they, in some ways, big or small, make our lives more convenient, more peaceful, more livable. We even make peace treaties and agreements, trade agreements with other nations so that we won't be at war, so we'll have a sense of peace. Yet there's still tension there. There's still fear. Because all these things fall short of actual, lasting, eternal peace because we put our hands on them. We try to manufacture them. We try to establish them. And we're not able to have, to make that lasting peace. We're always going to find a time when we're on edge. So we have to turn to the Bible to figure out what it says about peace. In Colossians 1.20, it says, And through him, through Jesus, to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of the cross. And in Romans 5.1, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And so in those two verses and many others, we see that peace with God comes from reconciliation with God through the blood of Christ and justification by faith through Jesus Christ. And so these two things make up for peace because we can't make peace on our own. There's nothing we can do in and of ourselves that will make lasting peace. One with each other, or more importantly, with God. To the people in this passage, and oftentimes us as well, are looking for circumstantial peace, peace that will last for a season. We've forgotten the eternal divide and the wrath of God due to us as sinners because we want to just go along to get along, right? They had seemingly exchanged this idea of eternal forgiveness with being content with a sacrificial system. They, by the way, they were there for the Passover. They were there for the great remembrance of what God had done in Egypt so many years ago. And so they were, they were going through the motions, but they were content with that. And they wanted a king to enable them to have a peaceful life. They wanted to have peace in their time. They were comfortable with the way things were, and their focus was not eternal, but very temporal. And we have to remember, again, that these were religious people. They were following Jesus because they thought he was a great teacher. They were there to celebrate the Passover. They were steeped in the religious ceremonies and expectations of the time. And they were following, like I said, Jesus, who was the biggest speaker of the time. It was like following John Piper or John MacArthur or even uh, Tim Keller. Like they were great teachers. They provided a lot of wisdom. And they thought, hey, if we follow this guy, we'll pick up on some things. And by the way, I heard he gives a free meal every once in a while. So they were following Jesus because he had done all these things. And he had just raised Lazarus from the dead maybe a few weeks ago. And so 
He's the next big thing. But they were caught up in the here and now. They had exchanged the promises of God for a substitute of their own making. So this leads Jesus to weep over the city because he sees the city as it is. It's a proud and unrepentant people. A people who are going through the motions, but never really submitting or recognizing the Messiah who was standing in front of them. And so they wanted a king of their own. They were not the nation they thought they should be. And right now, Jesus was presenting himself as a king. He was riding a donkey into the city. Now we have to step back because it's easy to say, oh, yeah, silly Jews. Like, we don't make that mistake. But do we? Do we seek a peace that only lasts temporarily, that it removes us from our current suffering, our current circumstances that are unpleasant? And you see, some might take this passage and think, oh, if Jerusalem or the majority of Jerusalem had accepted Jesus as the Messiah, as the Savior, then they would have avoided this destruction that Jesus is foretelling. And that's not for us to decide because it's what God had ordained and, and planned. And so, but we can get, fall in that idea like, oh, if we repent, if we as a nation repent, then God will bless us again and we'll be rid of all these evil things that are happening to us. But the Bible gives us no indication that this is true. In fact, it's quite opposite. Sometimes throughout the New Testament, the Bible says that the church will face persecution and suffering because persecution diffuses the gospel. We see this early on in Acts. After Stephen's stoning, which Saul approved of, there arose that day a great persecution against the church, and they were scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, which is interesting because I think Jesus mentioned those places in the Great Commission. And so they they were scattered. And then later in verse 4, it says, those who were scattered went about preaching the word. They went and actually did what they were supposed to do. They were spreading the gospel. The gospel was going out in the midst of persecution. There was no earthly peace for early Christians because Paul or Saul and the Pharisees were hunting them down and throwing them in prison. They were persecuting them and almost to the point of death, attempting to wipe them out. Even Paul mentions in Philippians, right? he was grateful that while he was in prison, it had served to advance the gospel so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. So not only was Paul sharing the gospel with those around him, but it was encouraging and empowering other people to share the gospel as well. So not only was he being witnessed, but emboldened others to speak up in fear. God used persecution and suffering to advance the gospel, to spread it out, to make people uncomfortable so that they had to make a choice. Right? Suffering for Christ is something that Paul speaks a lot about, and the New Testament highlights a lot. 1 Thessalonians 1, 6, And you became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you received the word in much affliction for the joy of the Holy Spirit, with the joy of the Holy Spirit. 2 Timothy 3, 12, Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. doesn't seem like that's an option. It kind of seems inevitable. And then First Peter, he touches on it, that yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. 
So this notion of a peaceful existence while we live here on earth is a manufactured lie from the enemy. We are lauded to sleep in America believing that we can be a Christian nation, that God will bless us because the majority of people say that they are Christians. Jesus didn't die for America to be a Christian nation. He died so that lost men could be found and dead men could be made alive. The passage tells us why the city was not spared. The things were hidden from their eyes. And it seems kind of unfair, and we have to wrestle with this idea of what does it mean that Jesus says these things were hidden from their eyes? The things that make for peace, reconciliation, justification, forgiveness of our sins, they are hidden from our lives, from their eyes. And John Calvin mentions this in a commentary on this passage. This is not said for the purpose of extenuating the guilt of Jerusalem, not for missing it, but for, on the contrary, it marks with disgrace the monstrous stupidity of that city, that when God is present, it does not perceive him. He goes on to say that Christ intended also to remove an offense which might otherwise have perplexed the ignorant and weak. For when the eyes of all were directed to that city, his example might have been very great influence in both respects, for evil or for good, that no man then may be perplexed by its unbelief and proud contempt of the gospel. Jerusalem is condemned for its disgraceful blindness. He goes, he's saying all that and touching on a very important doctrine that we in the West really, really struggle with, I think, wrapping our minds around. But he says all that because Jerusalem had to be an example. He couldn't stand and reject the truth. And so as Calvin touches on this election, we have to understand how does election work? God chooses some but doesn't choose others. How is that fair? How, why does God choose some and not all. If God loves the whole world, why doesn't he choose the whole world? Right, part of that is a struggle because we have to go back, take a step back, and think, well, what basis of fairness are we judging that? Are we judging it on yours and mine? Because what I think is fair might be different from what you think is fair. And it certainly is what's different from what God believes is fair. Because fair, according to me, we look around and we see people, and we think, oh, mo- people are, are mostly good, right? They're mostly law-abiding citizens, and they are nice. Like if your package gets delivered to your neighbor's house, more than likely they're going to bring it to your house and not open it and keep it for themselves. And so we have this belief that we're all depraved, but we also have this working theology that says, oh, most people are pretty good. Right? Most people are good. But no, we are all Depraved doesn't mean that we're depraved completely. We're not all as terrible as we could be, thanks to the grace of God. But every part of our lives, every part of our person is tainted and spoiled with sin. We are not able to save ourselves. We are lost. However, there does not evade or allow for the exception of human responsibility. In the Articles of Faith, Article 10 Dash one, this is paraphrased a little bit. It speaks on the fall of Adam, man lost his ability, apart from the grace of God, to desire or carry out the things necessary for a right relationship with God. Man has not lost his ability to make decisions. However, left to himself, he acts only in accordance with his fallen sinful nature, which if we look in the mirror and we're honest with ourselves, we see this every day. We see we make choices based on our own strength, our own desires, 
and we stumble. Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. It doesn't mean that we took the test and we didn't get an A. It means we took the test and didn't even finish the test because we couldn't put our name in the right line. We are lost. We can't write our name if we can't see. We don't know what the scale is. So it's not like it's graded on a curve like, oh, well, some people did better, so we'll just kind of bring these people along. No, we couldn't even complete the test. And so we say we believe these things, we affirm these things, we're saved by grace and not by works, but really believing it means we have to wrestle with the implications. The implications are that we are all destined for hell, a complete and eternal separation from God, unless we've accepted Christ and realized that he is the only reason that we can be saved. And it doesn't matter if we've created a huge pile of sins or if we only did one bitty, bitty, tiny sin all destined to the same place. So fair, based on that, says that we're all going to hell. And so why does God elect some and not the others? That's his good pleasure. But it's not out of just a distance, random chance. The same, oops, sorry, I went the wrong way. The election from the same article, Article 11, is a free act of the sovereign God in which from eternity, for reasons known only to himself, and apart from any foreseen faith or goodness found in man, he graciously chose from among the fallen mankind a people unto salvation. They might be conformed to the image of Christ, so chosen, those chosen he redeemed and seals with his spirit. Right? We see this throughout the New Testament. Second Timothy 1.9, who saved us? Christ saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our own works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. In Romans 8.29, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, in order that he might be the firstborn of many brothers, and those whom he predestined, he also called, and those whom he called, he also justified, and those who he justified, he also glorified. We see this in Ephesians as well. Ephesians 1, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. And in verse 11, in him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. So understanding these two doctrines is important because it gives us a clearer, more intimate look and understanding of Jesus' heart in this moment. Because we could take the hard, hyper-Calvinistic view of like, oh, well, God elected these people and not these people, so forget about them. They are worthless. They're, they've already made their decisions, right? They're helpless. However, you and I don't know what's going on in other people's hearts. I can't, I don't have a special x-ray vision, right? They don't make contacts that you can put on and can see and read people's hearts. Only God knows where and when the Spirit is working in someone's heart. And we'll see that even on Friday. And so we're not God. We can't see the other part. Even so, this is not the heart of Christ for the lost. He's not saying, well, too bad Jerusalem is doomed. Oh, well, I guess I'll go in there, do my thing, get out as fast as I can. No, he doesn't cringe at the thought of touching dirty sinners. We see it throughout the Gospels. He's hanging out with people who are sinners, people who are outcasts and are living in their filthy sin, and he cannot 
bear to hold back. If he could bear to hold back, if he's frustrated with us, he wouldn't have even came in the first place. But he did. And I love this way. Uh, Dane Ortland in his book, Gentle and Lowly, puts it this way. We naturally think of Jesus touching us the way that a little boy touches a slug for the first time. He kind of reaches out, cringes his face, looks away, touches it, and pulls back because it's gross. Megan's not in the room right now, but she doesn't like slugs either. Uh, I can't share that. Uh, And so, but he doesn't. He doesn't pull away. Maybe another way to think about it is think of your, your teenage son's room, right? To go in, you have to go in and say, tell them something, tell them something, and you, the door's closed, you prepare yourself, take a deep breath, you walk in, you say your piece, and you walk out as fast as you can. You don't want to stay in there any longer. Not because you don't love your child, just because the room is a mess. Or the laundry room, like you like walk past it, and you're like, I'm not going there, because I know I'll get sucked in. And so you avoid it. Jesus is not avoiding us. He's pursuing us. And that's the beauty of this passage, is Jesus' tears. He's weeping over the city, because he knows they had rejected him. And now their judgment will come in the form of the Romans. So their eyes were blinded as part of God's judgment. They had rejected the king who was there to save them. Right? God had given them over to their passions, their desires. Right? And we see this throughout the Old Testament. Pharaoh's heart is hardened so that God can perform miracles through the plagues. The Canaanites were in the land during the conquest, and they were blinded to the truth of God. So God demonstrates his wrath and judgment where he sees fit for his glory and the glory of his people. And this time, the destruction was severe. Jesus knew what was coming. He had the foresight to know. And in my mind, I picture it as a, as a montage. As he was looking at the city, he could just kind of see what was happening because he knew the level of destruction, the level of uh, destroy or of anger and just terrible things, horrific things that were going to happen. And we have maybe the fortunate or unfortunate luxury of being on this side of history and having historians record this. And we are told that Caesar was so bent on destroying this entire city, that he wanted the whole thing raised to the ground, leaving only three towers that projected higher than the others. And these towers were to reveal to posterity that Look how great Jerusalem once was, and look what we, the Romans, did to it. We destroyed it, and we can do the same thing to you. The destruction was so great that the streets ran red with the blood of women and children. Caesar was so bent on destroying the city that he wanted to make it impossible for anyone that came after to believe that Jerusalem was once inhabited. And I can't picture that kind of destruction. But it was terrible. And Jesus saw this and he wept for the people because they were lost in themselves. It's not the first time God used judgment or attacking the city. We see this throughout the Old Testament through judges, uh, even into the exiles where Assyria and Babylon came in and raided and pulled the people out. God used Wicked powerhouse nations to rebuke and punish Israel for turning away and worshiping them. And so this time, God was using the Roman Empire to execute that judgment. 
But we see God's heart in all this, right? Amongst all the despair and destruction, we get to see God's heart, not just for the Jews or for Christians, but for all people, for lost people, right? John 3.16, probably one of the most popular, most well-known verses uh, in the world, Christian and non-Christian alike. For God so loved the world that he sent his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. It's a trademark verse, I guess, in a way for God's love for the world. And not to, to impede on Pastor Smith and where he's going to go when we get back into John in a couple of weeks, but Jesus goes through and, and shares this, but he says that he didn't come to judge the world, but the world has already been condemned for our sin. Jerusalem did not believe, we do not believe, people who do not recognize the coming of the Messiah are already condemned. And so he, is, he was not the king they wanted, he was not the king they thought they needed, but he was the king we all need. And so in this context, Jesus weeps over them. Jesus weeps as a new kind of king, right? A new kind of king who comes for the people, not to conquest, not to make war, but to make peace, to bring peace, repentance from our sin and reconciliation with God. And so there's a, a poem I found from G. Campbell Morgan. The Son of God in tears, the wandering angels see. Be thou astonished, O my soul, he shed those tears for thee. The tears of Christ measure the value of your soul. The tears of Christ measure the value of your soul. He cried, he wept for you and for me. He wept. For the loss. And so this leaves us, I believe, with two questions. Do we miss the king? Do we miss the king? Are we looking or preoccupied with something else that we miss the king? Do we acknowledge him as a king of our world? And is this evident by the way that we carry about our business and the way we make choices in our life, the way we do things with our body, the way we spend our money, the way we spend our time? We spend our energy and resources, is it all evident that he is the king of our life? It's easy in our culture, and we're blessed as of now to sit in church and affirm these things and to shout amen and to nod in approval. But it's one thing to live these things outside on a daily basis. Jerusalem was going through the motions. They were there for Passover, by the way. They were there to do the ceremonies and enjoy the festivals, but their hearts were far from God. And how sad is it that these people were able to see Jesus, probably even physically reach out and touch him, yet they never received him as their king. They never trusted him as their savior and therefore never reached the joys of heaven. We know how sad it is. Jesus wept over it. He wept over their loss. And so it can be easy, right, relatively easy, as arrogant Christians to think that God is unmoved by the sufferings of the lost. Look at those wicked people. I can't believe how wicked they are. Look at the things they are doing. And in our culture, it's very evident to see some very wicked things. But it doesn't seem to imply that's the heart of God. Think of the story of Jonah. After he got done doing his little whale thing, he went to Nineveh to do the message. Gave, God gave him a second chance. He's like, all right, I'll do it. 
but he only did it half-heartedly. He walked halfway through the city, this huge city, and said, hey, repent, or God's going to judge you. Okay. And he walked out. He's like, hey, look, I'm going to sit up there on that mountainside and wait for God to destroy these wicked people. And what does God do? He uses that that half-hearted attempt of sharing the gospel, sharing the message that he had proclaimed, and he softened the heart of the king and softened the heart of the people that they repented, and he didn't destroy. Do you know that Jesus still weeps over the lost? He knows the judgment awaits you if you are lost and does not desire for you to be eternally separated from him. God doesn't send people to hell. Their unrepentant sin sends them to hell. God is just, and his holy justice demands payment. He wants people to believe. He commands us to believe. And those of us who are in Christ are covered by his righteousness, not a righteousness of our own, but it's one that's been given to us. And God demands that we believe, demands that we turn our lives over. It's not like a, a choice or a side option. Hey, do you want a side of Jesus today? You can just kind of throw it in there with everything else and you'll be okay. The old stamp of approval. No, he wants the whole thing. It's the whole package. Jesus is the king of our lives, all of it. He doesn't just want some of it. He doesn't just want the living room, the dining room, and the kitchen. He wants the family room. He wants the bedroom. He wants the garage. He wants the backyard. He wants the whole thing. We can't just say, all right, well, you know what? I think we'll just give you some of this. You can have this part. You can have my, you know, I'll be generous. I'll give you my work life. No, he wants that plus your family life and your friends and your school and whatever else you're involved in. He wants all of it. He wants to be king of all of it. And if we don't, if we hold out, we don't accept him as king, don't accept him as savior, then we are facing the same kind of judgment. And so the second question, do we weep for the lost? Do we have the same heart that will cry out and lament for lost people? When was the last time you cried tears of concern for people who don't know Jesus? Now, I would be willing to assume some of you in this room do it on a daily basis for loved ones, for children, grandchildren, maybe parents, uncles, right? You have people in your life that you are regularly praying for. But the rest of us, do we cry tears of lament when we think about the people in this community who don't know Jesus? Does it bring us to tears? J.C. Ryle once said this, we know but little of true Christianity if we do not feel deep concern about the souls of unconverted people. A lazy indifference about spiritual state of others may doubtless save us much trouble. To care nothing whether our neighbors are going to heaven or hell is, no, is in no doubt the way of the world. It saves us a lot of grief, a lot of stress, if we don't have to think about other people. Right? You can, we can sleep easy at night. But is that the heart of Christ displayed to us? Is that the way, and he says, the way of the world cares little about whether people are going to heaven or hell? You do you, I'll do me. We are called to share the passion that Christ had for people who are lost in their sins, to weep for their sorry condition and cry out for their salvation. And so do we share the same conviction? Do we weep for the lost? Do we love our neighbors, our co-workers, our grocery store clerks, our gym mates, our classmates, our teachers, 
our politicians? Do we weep for them? Are we moved to tears because of their sorry state? Are we, or do we write them off and say, well, they're lost. So be it. That, brothers and sisters, does not seem to me to be the heart of Christ. So as we begin this Passion Week, may our hearts reflect on the heart of Christ, the heart of God who weeps over the lost world, and that we may be drawn as well to weep over the lost. And so I want to leave you with two things. If you are in this room and you are not sure about where you sit when it comes to the final judgment and judgment before God, if you are not sure, I would, I would urge you, I would plead with you to talk to one of us, the pastors up front, or talk to someone else in your pew and figure that out today. What a wonderful opportunity, what a wonderful time of year to figure that out is when we celebrate the passion of our Savior. If you are, if you are confident, which praise the Lord, if you are confident in where you stand before God, then I would pray that you would reflect on the heart of Christ this week, that you would be drawn, the Lord would work in your heart to be drawn to weep for the lost. That someone in your life that you know or are unsure of that is standing before God, uncertain of where they are, that you would be drawn, like our Savior was, to weep over their sorry state. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, I thank you for the opportunity we have, even each year, to, to pause and to celebrate, to reflect on the, this week um, of immense emotion and pain and suffering that you endured on our behalf. Lord, there is no... No cause for it other than the love that you have for us. And Lord, we are, we are grateful and humbled by that. Lord, thank you that we have the opportunity by the sacrifice to have and to know that we are righteous before you, not because of what we have done, but because of what you have done on our behalf. And you have bestowed this righteousness on us by your grace. Lord, I pray that that would not move us to complacency, but would move us to a place where we look at others in our world, those around us and draws to tears, draws to a point of weeping loudly and lamenting the sorry state of blind and lost men and women. Lord, I pray that if there's someone in this room, that they would be moved today and moved this week as we celebrate today and and Friday, and and we look forward to Easter next week, Lord, the, the wonderful celebration of your resurrection and the hope that that brings us, or that they would be moved to talk to a family member or a friend this morning, that they would not leave this room without understanding and knowing and having the confidence uh, of standing before you today, fully assured of righteousness because of Christ. Lord, I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.